I'm Caroline Larrington from St John's College, Oxford and the Oxford English Faculty. And in this little presentation, I'm going to introduce you to Sylvia Townsend Warner, one of the more underrated of fantasy writers in the 20th century. She wrote two key books, one at the beginning of her career and one at the end. And this is going to be a very brief introduction to her work. Townsend Warner was born in 1893. Her father was a schoolmaster at Harrow School and she was brought up in a fairly unconventional way. She was highly musical and her plans were to go to study in Vienna with Arnold Schoenberg before the First World War and her father's death put a stop to it. Unlike many young women of her class, she worked in a munitions factory during the First World War but she also started a relationship with a married man and as a result of that association she became an editor of the great collection of Tudor church music, a 10 volume Oxford University Press publication which came out during the 1920s and with which she continued to be involved. She also was close friends with Theodore Powys, who was the brother of John Cooper Powys, a quite well-known fantasy writer, whose work is perhaps not so popular today. And she was also well acquainted with Arthur Machen and his family. Again, another fantasy writer whose work is beginning to be rediscovered. Townsend Warner remained independent of her family after her experience of working in London in the First World War, and by 1930, she'd met Valentine Ackland, who would be her lifelong partner, and they move in together. There's an interesting biography of Townsend Warner written by Claire Harmon, which was published in 1989. And there are also her letters and her diaries, if you're interested in finding out a bit more about her life. One of the things that interests me most about Sylvia Townsend Warner's writing is its sheer variety. She never seemed to write the same novel twice in a row. Lolly Willows, the first novel to be published in 1926, about which I'll say a bit more in a moment, is a fantasy set in the rural south of England. And before that, she'd written a well-received collection of poetry. She continued to write and to publish poetry through the rest of her life. Lolly Willows was followed up by Mr Fortune's Maggot, in 1927. This is a novel rather in the vein of W. Somerset Maugham and it tells of a, a missionary, Mr Fortune, and the experiences that he has on a remote South Sea island where he's been sent to try to convert the natives who seem perfectly happy in their own animist religion and really don't seem to want to be converted at all. A couple more novels, rather more realist and set in various historical periods, followed after Mr Fortune's Maggot. And they're really rather more like 19th century novels in their scope and their attitude to character. But after the death of Don Juan, which came in 1938, was a very different piece of writing. It drew upon Townsend Warner and Ackland's own experiences as volunteers in Spain in the Spanish Civil War, but it blended that immediate contemporary kind of reportage with the history and legend of the great seducer, Don Juan, 
Don Giovanni, as we know him best perhaps from Mozart's opera of the same name. The Corner That Held Them is a novel that's been recently rediscovered. It's a long novel, but a kind of quiet, low-key story about a group of nuns who live in an out-of-the-way convent in 14th century East Anglia. They live through the Black Death and various other kinds of um, historical events in the 14th and early 15th centuries. And the story is fascinating in the way that it makes you interested in these women, many of whom are very similar to one another. It, you learn about their petty jealousies, their little power plots, their passions and their weaknesses. And we also hear of the priest who ministered them over the years. Townsend Warner was given access to the life materials of T.H. White, the author best known perhaps for writing the Once and Future King tetralogy, the first novel in which series is The Sword in the Stone, a wonderful children's fantasy about King Arthur. Ackland died quite a long time before Townsend Warner and in the later years after Ackland's death, during the 1970s, she published a collection of short stories called Kingdoms of Elfin. They're published serially in the New Yorker and that's one of the works that I want to focus on in this introduction. I'll say more about Kingdoms of Elfin in a moment. Lolly Willows, published in 1926, is a quite remarkable story. It's a feminist comedy, a fantasy. In some ways it's quite satirical and it tells the story of Laura Willows or Lolly as she's known to her nephew, Aunt Lolly in fact. When the story begins, Lolly has just been forced to leave Somerset where she's been living with her father. Her father has died and she must now move to London to live with her rather annoying brother Henry and his family. 20 years of being the maiden aunt, of looking after the family and leading a dull, dull life pass very swiftly until all of a sudden one day Lolly decides while buying flowers in London that she will leave London and she buys a guidebook to the Chilterns and gets on a bus and goes off exploring. She's very taken with the landscape of the Chilterns, with the beech woods and the high chalk hills. And soon she lights on a village called Great Mop, and to her family's astonishment, she ups and moves to Great Mop, where she rents a room from a landlady and settles in, making new friends with her landlady and with a poultry farmer who lives nearby. And she begins to enjoy her freedom. The villagers are welcoming, but perhaps in some ways rather reserved, and there's sometimes some strange noises at night. Nevertheless, Lolly is quite satisfied with her life. But then her nephew Titus, now quite grown up, decides that he will move to Great Mop as well. He's come to visit Lolly and been very taken with this charming village. Titus was meant to take over the family brewing business and become a successful businessman, but he's decided to become a writer instead. And his arrival in the village 
ruins the happiness that Lolly had found because Titus is a typical young man who is not really very self-reliant, though he likes to think of himself as such. And soon Lolly is being pressed into making sure that his clothes are washed and that he's fed and that his house is clean and so on. Lolly finds all this very frustrating. And then shortly after that, she takes up with a little cat whom she names Vinegar, after a witch's familiar in a book that she's been reading. And it's not long after that again that her landlady lets her into the village's secret. The villagers are in fact Satanists and Lolly is taken up into the woods on a dark night to take part in a witch's Sabbath. And thus initiated, she becomes herself a kind of witch. She actually meets Satan and sells her soul to him, or at least promises her soul to him, if he will do something for her in exchange. All that Lolly wants is for Titus to vanish out of her life. And so a series of more or less comic mishaps begins to overtake Titus. His milk keeps curdling in the jug. He falls into a wasp's nest and is quite badly stung. And then luckily a young woman who rescues him when he falls into the wasp's nest becomes attracted to him and they fall in love and decide to leave Great Mob and go off to live in London once again. Lolly recovers her freedom and although she knows that it's cost her, well, her eternal soul, she's not really regretful of that. Lolly Willows was very well received it won the Prix Féminin in France and became very popular. It's a really interesting book, quirky, funny and with a distinct tone which would carry through Townsend Warner's later writing. Valentine Ackland died in 1969, aged only 62, and Sylvia would live on for another nine years and she never found another partner. She was perhaps a little lonely in those years, and she turned back to the fantasy mode, the one that had inspired her in her earliest writing of novels. And she begins on a series of short stories about the world of fairies, which are published serially for the most part in the New Yorker magazine. The stories were collected together and published in 1977 as Kingdoms of Elfin, and that has recently been republished in 2018 by Handheld Press. Sylvia's grandmother was Scots and must have told her a great deal about, about fairies in her youth. And it's fairly clear that she read collections like Catherine Briggs' Great British Folk Tales and doubtless 19th and early 20th century collections of other British folk tales and other folk traditions. Her research is worn lightly, however, and although the narrators, who are knowledgeable and dispassionate in her stories, are able to tell us all the important things that we need to know about the fairy courts and fairy customs that are related there, the learning is worn very lightly indeed. Townsend Mourner's fairies are about four-fifths the size of humans. They have wings, but it's considered rather déclassé to use them. Only working fairies use their wings. 
and they have the capacity to make themselves visible or invisible, switched on and off as if with a switch. They're rather like medieval fairies before these became tiny and twee, for which perhaps we have to blame Shakespeare in part. These fairies are neither good nor bad, but they operate according to their own lights and they have their own agendas. They're capricious, curious, quite petty in some ways, whimsical. They kidnap humans who take their fancy and keep them almost as pets, though Tiffane, the queen of the Scots fairies, did truly love Thomas the Rhymer, whom she took away and made her lover for seven years. Fairies live for many hundreds of years, unlike the humans, and when these get elderly, they kill them off or return them rather dazed and unhappy to the human world. Kingdoms of Elfin encompasses a good many fairy courts. There's the ancient Scottish court, the fashionable, luxurious and highly courtly French court of Brocéliande. This is a place of great ceremony and very strictly enforced hierarchies. It's rather like the court of Louis XIV at Versailles, Louis the Sun King, except that here they keep werewolves instead of hunting hounds. There's also a rather impoverished Welsh court, a Scandinavian court with absolutely terrible food where an ambassador from Brocéliande is sent and has a rather strange but not entirely pleasant time, and a Persian court too. The stories are beautifully written, with vivid descriptions and a wry humour. Yet somehow they're unsettling, for the fairies are both so like and yet not like us. It's hard to call them satirical, yet the view that they take of hierarchies of self-centeredness and small-mindedness is often one that does map on to the human world. If you've read Susanna Clarke's Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell, you may recognise many of the fairy traits in her Gentleman with the Thistledown Hair from that book. Susanna Clarke, so my friend Terry Windling tells me, is a great fan of Sylvia Townsend Warner, and her version derives in part from this world, as imagined by Townsend Warner, as well as the traditional fairy lore that they both share. Elfinor and Weasel draws lightly on the Suffolk folktale of the Green Children. Or is it really a folktale? It's hard to say. It's a story that's found in two late 12th, early 13th century medieval chroniclers, who both independently tell a story about a boy and a girl, absolutely bright green, who are found at the edge of a field when people are harvesting in the Suffolk village of Wolfpit. The boy and girl come, they say, from a land underground where there's no sun or moon, but just a kind of twilight, and they've been summoned by bells to the land of the humans. If you're interested in these children, there's more about them in the Modern Fairies podcast series in episode four, which you can hear from this site. But back to this story. Elfenor is from the Dutch fairy court at Zeeuw, and he's on his way to England bearing a letter from the fairy queen there to be delivered to, well, who knows where. He has no idea what's in the letter and when it gets lost, of course, he's not terribly concerned about it. The ship runs into a violent storm and it sinks with all on board drowned, except, of course, for Elfenor, who can make use of his wings to rescue himself. He takes off from the mast and he's blown along by a ferocious gale 
and finally arrives on the shore in Suffolk. And there he's rescued or captured, it depends on your point of view, by Master Blackbone. Master Blackbone is a herbalist, an alchemist, a fortune teller, a phony manipulator of the supernatural. And he's very pleased to find a fairy whom he can make into his apprentice and whose capacity for working invisibly and whose knowledge about herbs and various other things comes in useful. So Master Blackbone and Elphinor more or less go into business together, though since he's only an apprentice, Elphinor gets his food, lodging and clothing and not very much else. Out gathering herbs one day, Elphinor meets Weasel, who is green and beautiful and rather savage in her ways. She's very much a child of nature. She's one of the local Suffolk fairies, or so it seems. And she lives in the land under the hill. She's fond of eating things raw. She likes acorns and flowers and nuts, but she also scoffs down a handful of minnows for breakfast, crunching them up. Elphinor doesn't quite care for that sort of thing. But nevertheless, they become lovers. And it's a real passion between them. But when they discover that Master Blackbone is planning to sell them in London, they decide that they must flee. And what happens next is related in the next slide. Having discovered the dastardly plot of Master Blackbone to sell them in London as a fairy pair in a kind of freak show, the two lovers decide that they're better off fleeing. And they take to the road. This is not easy, however, and they don't have many options. Elphinor cannot go and live with Weasel's relations because the people under the hill are just as fierce as her and they would murder him. Also, she says they would tear him to pieces because he isn't green. Elphinor himself realises that he can scarcely take green Weasel with her savage ways back to his civilised and sophisticated court in Zeu. She wouldn't be torn into pieces, but they would reject her because of her green colouring. The two managed to make a kind of living in a picaresque adventure around parts of Suffolk, and they venture into Norfolk indeed, and into Great Yarmouth. Elphinor can do some labouring work, and he soon becomes son's hand, and they gather little bits of money that way. Weasel just draws attention because of her greenness and she mostly has to hide. But she is, of course, quite good at stealing and they live a little by pickpocketing as well. Winter is coming, however, and sleeping in ditches and eating the food that they can scavenge from the hedgerows is losing its romance. And staying in a little village, they discover that they can take refuge in the church where they realise people will only come once a week, apparently, and where they can be safe and sheltered. So they break into the church and they even find some food. They drink the communion wine and they devour the communion wafers and then are horribly surprised by the arrival of the cleaning ladies who come with their flower rota, all ready for the upcoming Christmas feast. The two fairies retreat up the spiral staircase out of the way of the cleaning ladies higher and higher and higher until they find themselves in the bell loft 
This looks warm, comfortable and safe. And they settle down there to go to sleep. But it's Christmas Eve and the bells are rung and rung and rung over and over again by the bell ringers of the village. And this kills the two fairies. Poor Weasel goes first and Elfinor laments over her body and dies too. Nobody discovers them because nobody goes up into the bell loft until the spring comes and then they're buried in the same grave. It's a kind of romance, a kind of picaresque, but a story in a sense with no particular moral. Though I think we can read quite a lot out of the story of Elfinor and Weasel. Fairies, like humans, make snap judgments about people because of the colour of their skin or because of their education. They're like human doomed lovers, like Romeo and Juliet, who can't find a place where they can be together. They struggle to survive, and in the end, their encounter with organised religion kills them. I hope you've enjoyed learning a little bit about Sylvia Townsend Warner and her writing from this short introduction. She's become increasingly of interest over the last few years and now there's quite a lot out about her in the form of YouTube videos, Wikipedia pages and various other kinds of resources. I'd recommend that you start with Lolly Willows if you want to find out more about her fantasy writing and plunge yourself into that extraordinary world and get to know Townsend Warner's particular quirky tone of voice. And then there are all the other novels to explore, but at the end of it you'll find Kingdoms of Elfin, a strange, disturbing, and yet in many places very funny read indeed. Fantasy is a matter of building new worlds for people to explore. It takes us away from our everyday reality. But at the same time, fantasy is always reaching out back into our own world, telling us things about this world that perhaps we don't recognise unless it's transposed onto a new plane, set in a new light. Townsend Warner's work, particularly in Kingdoms of Elfin, does this brilliantly. And I hope you'll enjoy reading some more of her extraordinary stories. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.